indeed, Father, your word suggests that you inhabit the very praises of your people. We have been encouraged and admonished and have sought to do just that. To sing things which do indeed remember who you are and what you've done. Praise to the eternal God. Praise with us, the God of all grace. Indeed, Father, as we ponder these things, as we consider that which has been written and sung about you, our hearts are caught up as well into this paean of praise for the God who lives yesterday, today, and forever. The God before whom we will all stand and give an account of that which was done in the flesh. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who found a way to save a sinner such as I. A God who has punished my sin and yet forgiven it at the same time. In my substitute Christ Jesus he poured out his wrath. But in, my, in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, his sacrifice has been accepted and it has become mine by faith. Jesus' righteousness is now mine. I stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ because you, O oh God, are a God of grace. And I pray that every person in this room understands that simple truth, that the only way that any of us will stand before you safely is to stand before you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Father, we continue to pray for our nation. Give our leaders the kind of wisdom that is required to execute this great struggle in which we find ourselves. Protect the postal workers of D.C. and all over the country. Father, protect us from this, this silent attack of a very vicious person. And I pray, Father, that you will bring even them to justice. But our prayer is also that they might see through this the wrongness of their deeds and the beauty of our Savior. Oh God, it seems that about right now that India is engaged in a giant debate. They have seen the bankruptcy, or at least a major portion has seen the bankruptcy of Hinduism and are now considering where to go. And I pray that your spirit will dominate and lead the masses of India into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the money that is in our pockets. It is there not by our own ingenuity. It is there not because we're smarter or better or more educated or more savvy or more shrewd. It is there because you gave us the ability to make wealth. And everything that we possess in our checkbook is there because you first gave it. It is yours, O oh God. We steward it and we pray that you will accept our gifts as a part of our stewardship, might every dime be used to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and that only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Uh, rightly or wrongly, I feel constrained to just tell you this. Um, 
You know, it's, it's one of our desires to see more people than myself be able to make an offering to our worship service. Those, uh, of course, Jimmy is on staff, but uh, those other four people who you see up here are not paid musicians. They're just people who have gifts that want to exercise them for the glory of God. Man, that warms my heart. I, you know, I don't know. It seems to me that most church orchestras are paid. Ours is not. These are just dear brethren who uh, have gifts and want to exercise them. I hope you've got some that you'd like to exercise because we would sure like to give you the chance to do that. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them back to the book of Judges to chapter 13. And while you're finding that, I need to make a pastoral uh, plea. Uh, my pastoral plea is simply this. For the next three Wednesday nights, please come. The 7th of November, the 14th of November, we'll take the 21st of November off because of Thanksgiving being the next day. The 28th of November, 7th, 14th, and 28th. I want to ask you to be there. I'm not trying to build the attendance after that. If you want to stop coming, that's your business. But guys, um, we're very close to moving into that building out there, and we have got a lot to celebrate. And um, I want us to be able to celebrate maximally. And so, as you know, my, cons- or my concern happens to be the, the trauma that change can produce. And I want us to avoid some of that. So that we can enjoy all of God's sweet kindness to us as we, and it's gonna, it's close, guys. Probably middle January, late January, something like that. We still don't have a firm date, but, uh, I need to address some issues. Some issues that will help us, I hope, enjoy all that God has done among us. Very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, building this building and raising the money has been far too easy. I'm not saying let's make it hard. I'm saying that's God's kindness to us. That's his immense blessing upon this congregation. So let's make sure that he gets pleasure as to, in how we respond. And so that's what I want to speak to you about. For these next three Wednesday nights, change your schedule. Come be with us and let's chat about how we can prepare to experience all that God has in store for us. Now, follow as I read from Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. I'm going to need to read the whole chapter, so stay with me. Judges chapter 13 at verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. So the woman came and told her husband saying, a man of God came to me and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. 
Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the Lord came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was... The angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? And that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana, at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtol. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Samson. Everybody seems to know something about it. It was made into a movie, you know. Samson and Delilah. You know, in a, in, in a lot of ways, ladies and gentlemen, this is one of the most remarkable men ever mentioned in the Bible. Uh, for instance, uh, there was only one other man in the whole Old Testament who had his birth foretold by an angel. That would have been Isaac. Um, but uh, it was not just any angel that foretold of his birth. As you saw, the angel of the Lord, that constant emphasis, and we believe to be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Um, that only happened one time in the New Testament. And of course, that was Jesus. So only three people in the entire Bible, Jesus being one of those three, uh, enjoyed this privilege of having their birth announced prior to, its concept, prior to his conception. Another thing that you'll notice is that from the, before his birth, he was set apart. He was to be devoted and consecrated as a Nazarite. By the way, the um, um, <laughs> just kind of a funny vignette. When I gave my, my, secre my secretary the, the title to this sermon, um, 
she, I had written it in a strange way, and, and I had N-A-Z-I, and some a little separation, and R-I-T-E. And she buzzed me, and she said, how can Nazis be right? <laughs> and, and it wasn't uh, Nazis right. It was a Nazarite. And um, they are mentioned in Numbers chapter 6. And the laws concerning them. There were basically only three, that you drink no wine, that you don't cut your hair, you don't touch anything dead. The famous New Testament Nazarite was, of course, John the Baptist. So this fella, Samson, was set apart um, from, the, from before his birth to be a Nazarite to God, devoted, consecrated, separated. And then thirdly, one of the things that really drew me to the whole study of Judges was this emphasis in Samson's life concerning the Spirit of the Lord. He was endowed with this supernatural strength, and the strength was way beyond the size of his biceps, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, we're not even talking, well, I guess we could, but that's not the strength that's so important in this story. It's not those fists of steel that, that made him strong, but it was a miracle that had taken place within him. This mention of the Holy Spirit. And every time Samson's in trouble uh, in chapter 14, verse 6, in chapter 14, verse 19, in chapter 15, verse 14, you get this mention of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson. Uh, the, the mention of the role of the Holy Spirit is not uh, rare. It, it, it's unusual in the Old Testament. It's not absent, but it's unusual. Particularly the kind of emphasis that you see in the life of Samson. So what, what I'm simply saying is I hope you understand that the story of Samson is, is far more significant than just good fodder for VBS material. There's some real lessons here for us, ladies and gentlemen, and, and, and I hope we get some of them before we're finished. Um, this man is an important figure in the whole story of redemption. There's one other thing I want to point out. It really doesn't have anything to do with Samson, but in fact, we're going to look at this a little bit more closely next week. But you'll also notice that he was born into a very godly home to a couple of very godly people. Manoah and his unnamed wife are people who uh, really are uh, honorable. I mean, in fact, in verse 8, you'll notice it wasn't that he said, are you really going to do this? Oh, he believed the word of the Lord. He just wanted to know what we'll do with him once he's born. This is a, uh, a portrayal of uh, one excellent set of parents, two seriously godly people, which makes what Samson did all the worse. But gang, um, you find this man born into this home, dedicated from birth, having had his birth announced, and being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is a significant character um, in redemptive history. Uh, the story starts on a very positive note. And in all its ups and downs, and there will be several, uh, there is several points that are being made. And I've got just a couple of three for you this morning, and then we'll, we'll see some more in, as we get into the other parts of the story of Samson. And can I say this really kind of as an aside? Um, we're not going to do anything about that this morning, but I just want to speak to you parents. Um, you know, do you not, what Samson's problem was. We're going to have to address some of that in this audience. Now, I'm not, I don't think the pulpit should ever jump over any issue, and we're not. But I just want to warn you as parents, if you feel like dealing with this kind of uh, pleasure-seeking pleasure madness is um, 
is inappropriate for your children, uh, you might want to uh, put them in a Sunday school. I, I, I just want to make sure that I don't offend you as parents and that your children hear things. But in my opinion, there's no better place for them to hear it than by, from behind this pulpit. That's my opinion, but I'm not sure you share that. And if not, um, at least wanted to warn you. One of the lessons, uh, or the first lesson that I want to draw to your attention today is this. That God's, or, or that usefulness to God has nothing to do with human ability. That's the first lesson, ladies and gentlemen. The strongest man in the world is the devoted man. It's the consecrated man. The, the man who is most useful to the things of God is not one that has the best education, the cutest looks, the greatest wit, and the uh, most winsome personality. The thing that equipped Samson was none of those things. The thing that equipped him was the role of the Holy Spirit in his life as he worked out and played out this role of a Nazarite. It was Dwight L. Moody who said that the world has yet to see a man, or has yet to see a man who is wholly dedicated to Christ and what he can do. Because Moody understood that strength, strength in the sense of usefulness, Strength is a derivative of one's devotion to Christ. Cutting Samson's hair, and I think you already know that about the story, but later on, when Samson's hair is cut, it of course leads to his downfall. But it's not because his hair length was the origin of his strength. His hair length was simply a, a, a symbol of his consecration and devotion to God. And once that consecration goes, ladies and gentlemen, so does the strength. Now, now stay with me. I'm not talking about strength in, size, in terms of the size of biceps. I'm talking about strength in terms of usefulness to God. Um, a strength to withstand temptation. Strength to, um, uh, to lead your family. Strength to persevere in trouble. And I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, the strongest man in the world is the man most devoted to Christ. Our strength comes from the same place as did Samson's. And that strength came not from a devotion to weightlifting. It came from a devotion to, to God. As hard as that might be to realize about Samson. Guys, our strength is pretty much a devotion to our weakness. Do you understand that? What I'm saying, um, it, it was Paul who said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You know, I, I, can, I can hardly understand how anyone could consider themselves a saved person who hasn't come to the end of themselves and seen indeed just how much weakness there is. That's when things begin to change and are reordered in one's soul. But our strength is a derivative of our knowledge of our weakness. Isn't that enigmatic? The more weakness we know of, the more strength we enjoy. Gang, um, I, I want to suggest to you that many of you perhaps need to be saved from your strengths. It's your strengths that are separating you from God right now. 
It's those abilities that you're so proud of, that savvy that has made you so successful. That's the very thing that will separate you from God. Because our devotion is the, is the origin of usefulness. Our devotion, our, our brokenness before God. That, ladies and gentlemen, begins the process of becoming strong. That's the, that's the first lesson I wanted you to see. And, and a second one is I, I, you need to know, gang, and I think you do, that the world fears a consecrated man. If you are this kind of devoted individual, the world has no solution for you. Um, uh, and, and I say that to you by way of challenge to the people of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the world fears consecrated people. Uh, and it fears you. It can't manipulate you. It can't uh, hoodwink you. It can't lie to you. It can't lead you down the primrose path. It can't answer your arguments. The world fears a consecrated, devoted man. Ladies and gentlemen, to illustrate, one of the reasons that all of us seated here today are somewhat very unnerved, very unnerved by what's going on in Afghanistan right now, the reason that we're so unnerved is not because we don't have greater military strength, huh? It's because we're defacing wildly devoted people. I read a, a, a quote in U.S. News and World Report this week from our implacable foe, Osama bin Laden, who said, I don't need an army. Just give me two people with brains with training, and who have nothing to lose. Well, he's got more than two. Um, Napoleon once said, a devoted soldier is worth ten others. I forget the details of this story completely, but let me see if I can draw from my fast-fading memory. Back uh, during the Roman Empire, when she was uh, seeking to spread her influence in all directions... She, uh, Rome sent an army to uh, the coast of the Anglo-Saxons, which is, of course, present-day British Isles. And um, the, uh, the citizens of the British Isles realized that they were about to be invaded, and so an army was gathered uh, that only held a bunch of crude weapons. They were farmers, and they had farming implements. And they were going to take on this much sophisticated, more highly trained, more, better, uh, better weapons, but much smaller army that was about to land. And so after the soldiers had come ashore, the, uh, the peasants were about to engage the Roman army and they noticed something. They noticed that out in the water, the boats that they had come over on were set afire. Because in the mind of those Roman soldiers, there was no turning back. There would either be victory or there would be death. Because they were devoted to making Rome the most well-respected power in the world. And watching the boats burn was the thing that did the farmers in. And they realized, we can't handle that kind of devotion. So they went back to their farms and cowered beneath the Roman army. The world fears consecrated men, ladies and gentlemen. One of the things that should shame us is that the world has no respect for Christian testimony. 
And I'm afraid that's a derivative of our lack of devotion and consecration. Because we are so weak need in our consecration. The world has no real respect for what we stand for. Now, th- that's about as... That's an overview, and I, I have one other thing I want to say to you today, but that's about as positive as I can be concerning Samson. On the other hand, whereas this story has kind of a positive beginning, there is no story in the Bible that is more upsetting than this one. Samson is a vivid illustration of, of, of the doom that awaits a person or a culture whose primary strategy in life is, is pleasure-seeking, which is a very relevant theme in our day, is it not? Um, on the other hand, the name of Samson is found in Hebrews chapter 11 as one of the heroes of our faith. Hebrews 11.32. Samson is mentioned as a hero. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that I love about the Bible is it never tries to whitewash its heroes. I'm convinced that's one of the reasons that we can trust that the Bible is true, because it never tries to, you know, uh, uh, cover things up, whitewash them. No. The, the, The life of Samson in these four chapters reads like a Hollywood script for an R rated movie. It's difficult to find anything, or very little, if anything, about Samson's life that is commendable. In in some ways, he's just a pathetic character driven by powerful lusts and passions. His exploits read like the actions of an uncontrollable juvenile delinquent. His, his one redeeming quality, I guess, is that he reminded the Israelites of who the real enemy was, the Philistines. You will be told, and you'll see next week in chapter, or two weeks from now, in chapter 14, that the Lord was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. And that's what purpose Samson performed. He evoked a confrontation with the Philistines. And, you know, guys, it's hard to imagine that redemptive history had come to such a low point that God, in an effort to preserve the distinctive character of his people, uses a man that is not much more than a savage. The testimony of God's people surely was at an all-time low. You know, you wonder if Samson, did he know anything about the Ten Commandments? Uh, had, he, had he ever participated in the, in the Passover and, and experienced the richness of God's love? Did he know anything about the, the faithfulness of, uh, of Abraham or the meekness of Moses or the courage of Joshua? You know, guys, um, when I read Samson, about Samson and his unbridled lust and his recreational violence and his flirtation with the world and his apathy towards the things of God... Here's one hero that I don't want to emulate. At nearly 
every point, Samson is a disappointment. He's a spiritual disaster waiting to happen. He was called, he was set apart to be a Nazarite and display devotion to God. And yet, his life was characterized not by devotion, but by defiance. His life exemplifies um, not understanding and insight and wisdom, but it exemplifies ignorance and foolishness. He just didn't seem to get it, ever. He, he was clueless, frustratingly slow, and inexcusably blind to understand the will of God. He fought the Lord's battles during the day and disobeyed the Lord's commandments during the night. Winston Churchill had a, uh, a sentence that he used to describe the Russians during World War II. He said that the Russians were a riddle wrapped up in a mystery inside an enigma. Well, that's Samson. I don't know how to figure him out. And, and ladies and gentlemen, as we begin our study of, of Samson, let's start like this. Let's make up our minds, what is he? Is he a man of God or is he a devil? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that answer is given to us. I can settle that with absolute confidence. He's a man of God. According to Hebrews chapter 11, 32, there is no doubt, no question in my mind. But you know what that proves? It just illustrates how far a man of God can get off track. It's an illustration, ladies and gentlemen, of what a religious man can become when he loses sight and focus of what he was supposed to be. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that this is a marvelously relevant and germane uh, story. Because what Samson confronts you and I with, you and me with, is how do we construct our lives? On what basis do you and I, as the child of God, begin to construct a life? Folks, um, I can assure you of this much. If your life is managed the same way Samson managed his, you're going to end up in the midst of rubble just like he did. A religious man. A Christian. You know, guys, I think this gives us an insight as to, have you ever been, uh, you know, rocking along as a member of a church and everything's going kind of groovily? Well, that ages me, doesn't it? Um, everything's just going fine. And you hear, one of the pillars of the church has just fallen into an affair. One of the people who was our absolute hero around there, he was the uh, chairman of the missions program. He just, he's in jail now because he just got caught absconding with funds. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm suggesting that this will explain those collapses. When you determine to build your life on anything other 
then the centrality of Jesus Christ, this is what's going to happen to you. Ladies and gentlemen, in this story, who's the bad guy? The Philistines? Delilah? Gosh, Samson makes both of them look good. You know who the bad guy is? The religious man. The religious leader. He's the bad guy. And gang, it's we religious folk who can become such a mess seeking to manufacture a self on something other than God. Guys, here's the last and final point I've got for you and I'm finished. But oh, how I wish you would listen. Because I'm telling you, a very high percentage of you are guilty of this. Any life, ladies and gentlemen, that is built on anything other than Christ Jesus will be filled with insecurities. If your self is tied to anything that can be taken from you, you will forever live on the edge of collapse. And, and, and this is what I think so many of us have done. We have mortgaged our souls to blank. Fill it in. We've mortgaged our souls to a relationship. We've mortgaged our souls to a career. We've mortgaged our souls to our kids. We've mortgaged our souls to success. Our identity as a human being is tied to that thing. And then, for whatever reason, that thing gets taken from us. Now, gang, I'm talking about Christians. Christians trying to find meaning in their lives based on anything other than the centrality of Jesus Christ as your identity, your meaning, your purpose, your usefulness, your, your raison d'etre. Gang, in this past week, or actually it was last week, in my own devotions, I happened to be in two places, actually I was in three places in the Bible, but the two of them that are germane for this morning, I was in the last two chapters of Ezekiel, in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. I, I didn't know this before, but do you know that the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation is the book of Ezekiel? A lot of the stuff that you find in Revelation is found in Ezekiel. But in the the closing two chapters of the book of Ezekiel, God gives Ezekiel this vision about the the holy city, the temple mound, and all everything that's surrounding it. And right in the center of it is the temple, the holiest of holies, the sacrifice, etc. And then you flop over to the book of Revelation. You read the last two chapters and you're getting the description of the new heavens and the new earth. And where, what's going on there? Right at the center of it. Right at the center of it is the Lamb who was slain before the foundations. In fact, the Lamb is there giving light. You don't need any more sun or any more moon because it's the Lamb that's giving the light off to the new heavens and the new earth. And I looked back and I thought, what is the message here? The message is, is that the center of everything is Jesus Christ. 
Ladies and gentlemen, forget the new heavens and the new earth. Is He the center of your life? I'm talking to my brothers and sisters. Gang, I talk to mothers all the time who have banked their whole identity on their children coming up rightly. And then something happens. And they're not just sad. They are devastated. Because they built their self on having kids that would look good, perform well, and be honorable. I talk to men who are banking their identity on a career. And then it didn't go like they thought. Gang, forget Samson. Samson is, a, is an illustration of a man, a redeemed man. There's no doubt about that, ladies and gentlemen. That case is closed. A redeemed man who ended up like he ended up under this pile of rubble because at the center of his being was pleasure-seeking. What's at the center of your life? What is it, brother and sister? Because it's got to go. And, and let me tell you, because God loves us, it will go. Eventually it will go. It will be awfully painful. But it will go. Building an identity apart from God will lead to collapse. You seek to create a self, manufacturing an identity on something other than your relationship to the Lord, Lord Jesus. And it becomes kind of a self-salvation strategy. I'm going to make it through life because of mm, this. And I get all of my affirmation from mm, this. And then this is taken from us. And my whole world collapses. St. Augustine said that the essence of sin was disordered love. Do you get that? That's profound. Disordered love. Love in the wrong place. Soren Kierkegaard said that sin is the despair of trying to be yourself without God. The despair of trying to be yourself without God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the error of Samson. <laughs> and unbelievably, it's the error of so many of us, including me. Here's my challenge to you, my brother and sister in Christ. On a daily basis, you and I must return to the center before facing any kind of temptation. You and I need to start by declaring our allegiance to the living God. Ask for the strength to stand alone. Ask for the strength to have power to, to cope with temptation. And ask that from the very one who gives life its structure, its meaning, its purpose, its design, the very definition of self. God and God alone. Found this someplace. Remember it. 
Jesus Christ is the hub. All else is circumference. What's at the center of your life, my friend? Because if it is anything other than Christ, eventually you're going to find yourself under a ton of rubble. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind us that you will not allow us to have gods before you. That you will not allow us to have a disordered love. And Father, so many of us have it. And we repent, forgive us, that we have sought to, to get a sense of meaning in life by loving something more than we loved you. Now, Father, unearth that in all of us. Show us its wickedness and lead us back to the cross of Christ. Father, if you've led people here today who have not yet met our Savior, might they hear something here that so entices them that we will then have the privilege of pointing them to the one who is for us altogether lovely, Jesus and Him crucified. We pray in His name. Amen.